0: unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles we away survive, the We found found have oh, by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religion. <coughs> Morning. of murder. Sometimes a person's prejudice gets in the way of their better judgment. On April 26th, 1913, a 13-year-old girl was killed and despite overwhelming evidence proving it was someone else, a Jewish man was brought to justice for the crime. And when the people of Atlanta, Georgia, felt the man didn't get his just desserts, they took the law into their own hands. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Leo Frank, born April 17, 1884, lived a pretty successful life. His family moved to Brooklyn when he was very young. He went on to graduate high school and graduate from Pratt Institute in 1902 before moving on to Cornell where he studied mechanical engineering. In October of 1907, his uncle Moses asked him to travel to Atlanta to meet with a delegation of investors for a position at the National Pencil Company. He impressed the group and was offered a job, which he accepted. He traveled to Germany to study pencil manufacturing and, after his nine-month apprenticeship, came back to Atlanta and began working as the superintendent of the factory. Just before starting his job, he met Lucille Selig. The two married shortly after meeting and became prominent members of the Jewish community in Georgia. By 1923, Frank was elected the president of a Jewish fraternal organization and was known for his cultural and philanthropic contributions to the community. He seemed to have it all, a loving wife, a wonderful community, his faith, and a good job. It was at this job that he met employee Mary Fagan. Mary, born June 1, 1899, into an established family of tenant farmers, quit school at age 10 to join the workforce. In 1912, she took a job at the National Pencil Company, where she worked 55 hours on the second floor right across the hall from Leo Frank's office. In April of 1913, Mary Fagan was laid off due to the shortage of brass sheet metal, and on April 26, 1913, she arrived at her former workplace to collect the remainder of her pay. The next day, just before 3 a.m., the factory night watchman found the dead body of the 13 year old girl on the basement floor near the incinerator. The police were immediately called. Her dress was around her waist her underwear bloody and torn, and there was a strip from her petticoat wrapped around her neck. Her face was blackened and scratched from the ash-covered floor, and her head was bruised and battered. Nearby were poorly written and spelled notes that implicated a, quote, night witch, which police believed may have referred to the night watchman. After initially believing it was the watchman who was responsible for the crime, the police brought in Leo Franks. At first, he was brought in simply to help investigators identify the victim and give information about his company, but his nervous actions gave police pause. Then a man named Jim Conley, the factory's janitor, was arrested and changed everything. He said the notes were written by him, but at the instruction of his boss, Leo Frank, that the two men together were responsible for the young girl's murder. The court and news sources painted Leo Frank as a flirt who took advantage of the females in his employment, and that Mary Fagan was just a brutal mistake that he attempted to cover up. On February 24, 1914, Jim Conley was sentenced to a year in jail for being an accomplice after the fact in the murder of Mary Fagan. On July 28, 1913, the official trial of Leo Frank began. By the time his trial began, all of the Atlanta news sources had weighed in on their opinions of the case. The information and details about the crime were made readily available to the public, often tainted by misrepresentation and yellow journalism, and everyone had taken their sides. Mobs of people stood outside of the courtroom waiting to hear the details as they happened. Their presence was a constant intimidation for witnesses and a stressor to the lawyers both legal teams considered the implications of trying a white man, Leo Frank, based solely on the testimony of a black man, Jim Conley, in front of an early 1900s Georgia jury. The defense painted Jim Conley as a dangerous man who murdered Mary while trying to rob her, hence her missing purse, while the prosecution stated that an African-American man could not have been intelligent enough to make up the story, therefore it must be true. The prosecution focused on Leo's alleged sexual behavior, but when the defense questioned some of the female factory workers, they all stated that they had never seen Leo Frank flirting or touching any of the girls. In fact, they considered him to be a good man and a loving husband to his wife. This trial was extremely involved and detailed. If legal battles are something you are interested in, I urge you to read into this case. But... What is important is that it ended with Leo Frank being found guilty of murder after less than four hours of jury deliberation on August 25th, 1913. The following day, he was sentenced to hang on October 10th. From the time of his conviction, Leo Frank and his team fought tooth and nail filing appeals. They were steadfast that Leo had been wrongfully convicted and set out to prove it. And the case they presented was so convincing that on June 21st, 1915, Leo Frank had his death sentence commuted to life imprisonment by the governor. This same governor went on to say that he was certain that Jim Conley was the actual killer and that the only reason he did not issue a full pardon was that he believed Leo Frank and his legal team would be able to prove his innocence soon enough. Knowing full well that the press and community were still heavily invested in the case, Leo Frank was sent to a new state penitentiary in the middle of the night to avoid a mob scene, and shortly after he arrived, he was attacked by a fellow inmate who claimed he wanted to keep the other inmates safe by getting rid of Leo. To say that the public was outraged would be an understatement. On August 16, 1915, they decided to take matters into their own hands as eight cars containing a lynch mob left Marietta and headed for the Milledgeville Penitentiary. When they arrived at 10 p.m., an electrician cut the telephone wire while a group drained the gas from police vehicles, handcuffed the warden, seized Leo Frank, and drove 175 miles at top speeds while lookouts throughout the town kept a watchful eye. The whole community was in on the attack, including the former sheriff who provided a rope. Leo Frank was handcuffed, legs bound, and hoisted into a tree that faced the house where Mary Fagan once lived. Photos were taken after the lynching, photos that were later made into postcards and sold along with souvenirs like pieces of Leo's clothing and the rope he was hanged with. He was cut down, stamped on, and taken out of Marietta in a basket. The Cobb County Grand Jury convened to indict the lynchers, but though they were well-known members of the community, no one would identify them and they were left unpunished. The consensus among modern researchers is that Leo Frank was wrongfully convicted, that the town was plagued with overzealous news coverage, most of which was inaccurate and prejudicial which means that at the end of the day, an innocent man was lynched in rural Georgia based solely on mob mentality and prejudicial lies. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on April 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Today's episode is sponsored by Podcorn. I recently started using Podcorn as a way to earn some extra money while still doing what I love, creating this podcast and putting it out there for you guys to listen to for free. It's how I've been finding episode sponsors and great companies to work with. So if you are a fellow podcaster, listen up. Podcorn is a marketplace where you can find and connect with some amazing sponsorship opportunities such as host spread ads like this one, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. The best part? There's no middleman. No matter how big or small your podcast is, you can find the right fit for you. And something that I personally love is that you submit the proposals. So you always work with brands you enjoy and feel passionate about. You set your own rates and collaborate with the brand directly, ensuring you maintain creative freedom and full control. You never have to give up the rights to your podcast and its contents. And if there's ever a problem, Podcorn is there to support and help you every step of the way. You can feel safe with your creative baby. So if this sounds like a great opportunity for you, and it should, click the link in my show notes and start browsing all the brands in the Podcorn Marketplace.